0: Well, I've certainly enjoyed these sessions and this fellowship. I trust we'll meet again one of these days, Lord willing, before he comes or when he comes, either way. Well, several have asked very kindly about our work out there in San Diego, our new college. And Of course, it wouldn't be very appropriate for me to advertise another college here, but we do have a new school there, Christian Heritage College, and then associated with that we have our Creation Science Center. In which we're trying to write textbooks in every field from the point of view of biblical creation, and also we have research projects, we're trying to study different areas that we still have problems in, we have uh, also our radio work, we have 50 stations around the country with our Bible science radio program, and other things like this, and we would appreciate your prayers and interest we just continually, like every Christian work, I guess, are running behind financially, but the Lord supplies uh, miraculously every month our need, and we're grateful for this continual experience of his daily provision. Well, I know you're on all kinds of mailing lists, and you get all sorts of appeals and so on, and I don't want to burden you with any more than you want, but if anybody would like to receive our literature and be on our mailing list, why, we'd be glad, of course, to send it to you. So back there on the book table, where our our books are displayed, there is a little sheet with a place for you to put your name and address if you would like to do that. Uh, Don't, of course, if you don't want to, but uh, if you'd like to, we'd, of course, like to keep in touch with you. Now, this morning earlier we discussed the question of geologic time and the ages of geology from the standpoint of the Bible, and we saw... I believe quite conclusively, although not, uh, not thoroughly, we didn't have time for an exhaustive treatment of the subject, but I think we see that there's really no way that we can fit in the standard system of evolutionary geology, the vast span of geological ages with the fossil record and so on, into the biblical record. It's just not there. But we still, of course, now have to face the question of what to do with it. We do have these vast beds of sedimentary rocks with their fossils and their reigns in these orders, and we have the, the various dates that we get from uranium-lead dating and radiocarbon dating and, and all of these things. What do we do with all of this? We don't uh, want to shut our eyes to these things. They're there, and this has been made the basis of the evolutionary system. So we do want to know what to do with it. Now, uh, again, there's not time to do this uh, very thoroughly, but just uh, sort of throw out some suggestions and uh, uh, kind of an outline from which uh, you can take off and, and fill in later. As we deal with these geological ages, the geological column as it's called, we we want to understand uh, how they go about making these uh, dates, both the relative dates from one age to the next and also the absolute dates, so-called, in numbers of years. Now, y- you understand, do you not, that What we're talking about here, the geological column, as it's called, is supposedly a a column about 150 miles high, uh, built up of sedimentary rocks with the succession of fossils from the simple fossils in the early ages to the more complex fossils in more recent geologic time, extending over five billion years altogether. Now, this total sedimentary column goes up, uh, as I say, around 150 miles. Uh, theoretically, But actually, at any one place, we don't find that. At any one location, as you dig down into the rocks or as you look at the Grand Canyon or any place like that where there are exposures, you find that there are maybe a few thousand feet of sediments, and maybe sometimes as much as two or three miles, but that's about all until you get down to the bottom where there's nothing but the crystalline rocks. And so this sedimentary column has been built up by superposition from all over the world of uh, a formation over here and one over here and one over there, of building one on top of the other. And the principle of superposition which is used is, of course, that of the uh, assumed evolutionary succession. Now, uh, what is the real value of this and what does it really teach us? What is the explanation for this? column and these fossiliferous sediments and so on. Well, there are these two aspects we want to consider. The relative dating, so that uh, how how do we determine that uh, this formation over here is older than this one over here. And then the absolute dating, in terms of uh, how many years it's been since that was deposited. These are two different subjects, actually, the relative dating and the absolute dating. Before there were any methods available for calculating absolute dates, so-called, by radioactive minerals, the relative sequences had been worked out back in the early part of the nineteenth century by the early geologists. And so this uh, nomenclature of the geological time scale from the Cambrian through the Ordovician, the Devonian, the Silurian, the Permian, and so on, all of this was worked out a long time ago in terms of relative orders of dates. Primarily, this was done by Sir Charles Lyell and his colleagues. He was the one who popularized the principle of uniformitarianism. He tried to explain everything on the basis of the uniform operation of natural processes, operating as they exist today and then projecting over long ages to finally build up the entire column. And Charles Darwin, who followed Lyell, built completely his theory of evolution by natural selection, upon the long ages which had been postulated by Lyell in his uniformitarianism. Well, we do have the fossils. The sedimentary rocks are there. How do we account for them? Well, let me quote here from a standard book on fossils. To become fossilized, a plant or animal must usually have hard parts such as bone, shell, or wood. It must be buried quickly to prevent decay and must be undisturbed throughout the long process. Now, we've alluded to this already. In order to have fossils, at least of any extent, any, any large animals or large plant deposits and so on to, to become fossils, these have to be buried quickly or they won't be preserved. They will decay and be gone. So there must be something, some local blood or volcanic eruption or something like that, to trap these materials, these animals or plants, and bury them quickly. And then also they must be hardened or lithified quickly, within years at least, or else the decay the bacteria, the air and so on will get in there and the whole thing will decay and be gone. Now the whole fossil sequence therefore speaks of rapid burial, or the fossils wouldn't be there. And yet this has been made the basis of the idea of uniformitarianism, slow, uniform operation of natural processes over long ages. But the fossils to be there have to be buried quickly. Now, more and more geologists nowadays are beginning to accept the doctrine of catastrophism again, rather than complete uniformitarianism, because they realize, as they look at these great fossil beds, or as they look at the great volcanic uh, lava rocks out in the Pacific Northwest, and and many other such formations like that, they just realize that never could processes which are operating right now produce those kind of deposits. And so they will think in terms of a local catastrophe, a flood or a volcanic eruption or something, a a landslide, or something like that which will produce uh, deposits quickly on a small scale. And they'll talk about regional catastrophism now, whereas used to they wouldn't very much but they will still uh, uh, reject completely the idea of a universal catastrophe or cataclysm. But now let me read another quotation. This is from uh, a bulletin of the Geological Society of America, in which the authors say, there are two authors, The employment of unconformities as time stratigraphic boundaries should be abandoned because of the failure of unconformities as time indices, time stratigraphic boundaries, of Paleozoic and later ages must be defined by time, hence by faunas. Paula well, Probably didn't. Well, what he was saying there, if you break it down, was that it's impossible to recognize where one age stops and another begins. You see, in the development of, of the older historical geological sequences back in the 19th century by Lyell and the others, they worked in England. And in France and in New York and a few places like that, and they found that there was a definite unconformity, as they called it, between the, say, the Cambrian sediments and the Ordovician sediments. And this was originally supposed to have been because of of some kind of a revolution that the earth went through. There was a period back in the early 19th century when catastrophism on a multiple scale was in vogue. Uh, Cuvier and others uh, worked that out, and the idea was that when a certain age ended, then there was a great cataclysm, and everything was destroyed, and then God recreated everything, and there was a new age. And then this went on over and over again, a series of cataclysms like that. But then that was abandoned, and Lyell and others abandoned this catastrophism and went to uniformitarianism, but they still used this nomenclature of the different ages. And they thought that they recognized where one age stopped and another began by these unconformities. In other words, the sediments of one age would, say, be horizontal. You'd find a nice series of horizontal strata in the rocks. And then right above that, there would be a, a series of sediments with inclined strata. So there would be a definite d- division between them. And this is an unconformity. And so this uh, age system was worked out that way. But then, as time went on and men began to explore in other parts of the world, they found that, for, just for example, that although the boundary between the Cambrian and the Ordovician might be clear in England, when you got over to India, it wasn't clear. That one graded right into the other without any difference. And the only way you could tell the difference was by the fossils. Down low there would be Cambrian fossils, up above there would be Ordovician fossils, and one just went right into the other and looked like one was laid down right after the other without any time uh, lapse. And so that's why these authors say, because of the failure of unconformities as time indices, Time stratigraphic boundaries must be uh, defined by faunas, and the employment of unconformities as such boundaries should be abandoned. Now, uh, think here a moment. In other words, the the difference between one age and the next has to be abandoned because, in some parts of the world, they just grade right into each other without any lapse of time. And if they did that in India, they would do it in England, even though. There, there happened to have been a difference in direction or something, so that there looked like there was a, a, a discrepancy from one formation to the next. But we know in other parts of the world, for all of the ages, that uh, there are no such boundaries, so that continuously one grades into the other with no lapse of time, really. And the quotation which I read earlier this morning from Dr. Spiker of Ohio State, where he was criticizing the time scale, that was actually his purpose in doing it. He was saying that, really, we can't tell where one age stops and another begins, because they're, they're just continuous, and we can't really uh, tell them except by the fossils. Now, also combine that with the recognition that in any local formation, the, the presence of fossils proved that that was buried quickly, and wherever we find fossils, and this is everywhere in the sediments, we uh, conclude that there must have been rapid burial. Now we see that from one age to the next there was no time lapse and since every location, every local region was rapid burial and there's no time lapse from one to the next why the whole thing was buried quickly. And we come to face the possibility of a worldwide cataclysm embracing the whole fossil structure, the whole sedimentary column, the whole thing. Now, this immediately, of course, leads us to the Great Flood. As we mentioned yesterday, that's what Peter says. In his very incisive commentary on the last days, he says that the answer to the evolutionary uniformitarian system is to recognize, first of all, the fact of a special creation, and then the fact of a worldwide flood. And if you'll take these two great events and apply them in the understanding of the physical data, uh, you'll find it'll all work and the evolutionary uniformitarian system will be shown to be based on willful ignorance. Now, we don't have the time, but the, I think that we could show, if we had the time, and you can look it up in some of the books if you wish, the, the whole system, from the marine organisms in the Cambrian, the trilobites and all, the uh, sharks in the Devonian, the cockroaches in the uh, Permian, and and the dinosaurs in the Mesozoic, the saber-toothed tigers in the Pleistocene, the whole thing, all represents one great deposition, and what it really shows us is not the gradual development of life on the earth over vast ages, but rather the vast burial of life, the the vast burial of the world before the flood. And what we find in these sediments is the ecology of the antediluvian world. In the bottom rocks, we find the marine animals. They lived at the lowest elevations. In the middle rocks, we find the amphibians. They lived at the place where the seas graded into the lands. Up above that, in the low elevations, we find the reptile. That's where they live. And still higher, we find the mammals and birds and men, because that's where they live. And also, there are other things that were would be involved. The simplest organisms would tend to be on the bottom because they can't move very fast. And when they were overwhelmed by the fountains of the deep and all of this uh, activity, they were just buried quickly. And that's why most of the fossils that we find are simple marine organisms, buried in the deepest sediments. And the, the more advanced animals like reptiles, they could get away a little more effectively, and they wouldn't be buried as quickly, Less fewer of them would be caught and trapped, and also they would be buried at the higher levels on the, on the average, and finally you wouldn't find a great many mammals because they can move quickly, and you'd find almost no men because men would be able to get on logs or climb to the hills or, uh, and, and run. And when they were finally overtaken by the waters and drowned, they would just float on the surface. They would never be buried in the sediments, and so when the flood went down, they would decay and be gone, and you wouldn't find any remains. The the evolutionists would object and say, oh, but now wait a minute. You find, surely you would find uh, exceptions to this if that were the case. They, They just tend to all be piled together in some places because, after all, this great cataclysm. Wouldn't you expect to find, uh, why why would we find dinosaurs always separated from men and so on? Well, the answer is we don't always find it that way. That's the usual order because of these ecological factors and so on that I mentioned. But there are exceptions. There are places where there are formations containing young fossils buried beneath those containing old fossils. There are a lot of places like that. Some of them hundreds of thousands of square miles in area and, and miles in thickness. And then when you find these exceptions, why the, uh, the evolutionist has to find some kind of an explanation as to how they could got, get upside down. And so he develops theories of great overthrust and things like this. He piles theory on top of theory in order to bolster his theory. The
1: <laughs>
0: and there are places, too, where you find fossils from different ages mixed together. And we don't, again, have time, but just to give you an example... Uh, we usually think of the dinosaurs as having be- lived in a different age and world and condition than men they died out a hundred million years before men but we're finding increasing evidence nowadays that men lived at the same time as the dinosaurs and wherever we find these dinosaur bones they're trapped in uh, in masses like in the dinosaur monument and other places where you find lots of them together evidently they were either they hurried together trying to escape or they were all caught and, and moved together with the waters and finally deposit or something. You find them in great masses, graveyard type situations. And there are also places where you find a lot of dinosaur footprints. They they were running through the soft muds and they made these footprints and the mud turned into rock pretty quickly to preserve them somehow. As a matter of fact, you find tracks of many kinds of animals all over in all of the different ages. It's uh, It's interesting how these you know, when you go along the sand of, of a beach or something, why you make a footprint, but it doesn't last long, it's pretty soon washed out. But here we have these footprints all over everywhere, uh, many kinds of animals hardened into stone. Something must have happened to, there were chemicals in the water, cementing materials or something, so that when the footprints were made, they were hardened quickly, and also another sediment came along over and made a cast of it right quickly and prevented it from being attacked by the waves. And then later these were removed by erosion and exposed them. It's amazing how many of these things we find. And those of you that have looked at the Genesis flood know there's, there's some pictures in there of dinosaur footprints at the same location that human footprints are down in uh, Texas, central Texas, near the Paluxy River. Now, and there's been quite a number of footprints of dinosaurs found there and a number of human tracks. And of course, this is not supposed to be. And the evolutionists who have seen that say that it can't be, something's wrong. Either these human tracks were carved by Indians or something, or uh, they're erosion phenomena of some sort. The water eroded a footprint somehow or, or something, because obviously men didn't live at the same time as dinosaurs, so they couldn't be human footprints. A man at the American Museum of Natural History who saw them, he he uh, wrote an answer to a letter that uh, one of us sent to him. He said, "Well, this must have been some kind of kind of unknown amphibian that had a footprint that looked like a human." Well, you know. well, and most most of them, though, explain him as having been carved by Indians or by well. It is true that down there in the in that area these these footprints, these human and dinosaur tracks were exposed by a flood that came through about in the early 1920s, I think. And they began to attract some attention and the people in the area, especially during the 30s when the Depression came along, they found that uh, they, they turned out to be profitable. So they would carve these things out of the riverbed where they were found and sell them to tourists. And then one of them told us down there recently that uh, that it got it was pretty hard work carving these big limestone blocks out of the river. So what they did was to... Uh, to just get a, a, a limestone rock and take it to their yard and, and just carve a footprint out of it themselves and sell that. Well, uh, this has happened, and we know that there have been some carvings made. And now the problem is telling the carvings from the genuine. We know there's some too, uh, genuine too. Genuine cracks also. But uh, we, there, there are ways of dis- distinguishing, and uh, then here, in order to be more confident about this, uh, two or three years ago, a group went down there in the same area got a bulldozer and followed the line of tracks that had been cut out previously and scraped away the, uh, ledge on the bank in order to see if the tracks continued, and sure enough they did. And these were freshly exposed tracks were obviously not carved by anybody. They were there, under the overlying materials. And they were in the same, they're, they're in all, if you've ever been down there, all sorts of dinosaur footprints down in that area, and there are not as many human footprints, but there are some, and just last. Uh, while we were down there, and uh, there was a new exposure, there was some very perfect dinosaur prints in a certain ledge there that had been scraped off. And crossing the dinosaur tracks were human tracks. Now they weren't all perfect; they, they, they didn't all have the five toes. They had, but uh, they had uh, indication to the toes. Some of them seemed to have uh, moccasins on them. They looked like they had some kind of sandal or something. But uh, they were obviously a biped track. That is, there was a right foot and a left foot and a right foot and a left foot, and you can follow along. It fits a human track. You can put your foot in it. It fits right well, and fits the stride of a man who's running, and apparently this fellow was running. The dinosaur was running, too. <laughs> of
1: course,
0: why I think they were, they were both running away from the flood was what was But at any rate, and this is now being made into a film, which uh, ought to be out in a a year or so, and you'd like to see it, I expect, but, uh... and there's other evidence. We found uh, two or three years ago some human footprints in a Cambrian formation up in Utah, and these footprints had sandals on them. Now, the Cambrian formation was supposedly 500 million years old. This is the age of just marine animals, trilobites, and yet these human footprints are, if they're not human footprints, it's pretty hard to know what they are. Uh... The the stories of dragons that people have in all the different nations of the world. And if you want to see a a good description of a dinosaur in the Bible, I forget it, I think it's Job 39 or right about in there, the description of Behemoth. If you read that carefully and compare that with what we know about Brontosaurus, you'll find that they they fit just like hand in glove. I don't know for sure whether Behemoth was Brontosaurus or not, but it sure sounds like it. And Leviathan might have been an aquatic dinosaur from the description of it. There's all sorts of evidence accumulating, you see, that man and the dinosaurs lived at the same time. And the dinosaurs, I think, like most of the other animals, were destroyed by the waters of the flood. Noah probably took a couple of them in the ark. Baby dinosaurs, probably. <laughs> then they died out after the flood because there was a great change of climate, which uh, wasn't conducive to that type of animal. But at any rate, I think the more we look at the fossil record, the more it begins to appear, at least to to us, as the record preserved in the rocks all around us, wherever we look, of the great cataclysm in which the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. And that's why Peter says men who don't see it are willfully ignorant. It's there everywhere around us to see, if we just uh, recognize it for what it is. Now, these relative dates, then, really don't mean anything. The whole series was essentially the same time. I think some of the rocks, perhaps the Pleistocene, maybe some of the others were after the flood but resulting from the change of climate which led to the glacial period and so on. But Now what about the absolute ages, the uranium-lead and the potassium argon and the radiocarbon and these kind of things? Here they uh, have told us that uh, we have a process. Uranium is, we know this mineral, we know its rate of decay. It decays through a long chain of intermediate daughter products, radium and radon gas and other things finally coming out with lead and helium at the other end. Uh, thorium does the same thing. Rubidium decays into strontium. Potassium decays into argon and calcium, and so on. And we know the rates at which these occur. So we go into the rocks and we find a uranium mineral, and it has lead in it. We can tell how long it's been since it deposited. Same way with the potassium mineral. And this proves that this particular rock was laid down three billion years ago, because that's what the uranium lead date says. Well, okay, but now I think it's it's worth looking at these things a little more closely to see whether they really teach that or not. If you stop and think about it, in nature, as we've discussed uh, last night, there are really only two basic laws, the two laws of thermodynamics, and every process operates within the framework of those two laws. And every process involves a change with time. That's what a process is. Something's happening, something's changing with time. And therefore, every process, theoretically, could be used to measure time, if we knew how fast it changed with time. So there's an infinite variety of these things that we could use to measure time. Well, why is it that the, that the evolutionist likes to use only two or three of them, like uranium and lead? There's a, there's a million different processes that could be used. And a lot of them are just as reliable and legitimate to use as the uranium lead, but they would give a much younger age. For example, just to give you an idea, you know that meteoritic dust is falling on the earth at a known rate all over the earth from outer space. And we know how, how rapidly it's accumulating on the earth? Now, if the Earth has really been here for five billion years, and meteoritic dust is falling at the same rate that it is now for five billion years, there would be a layer of meteoritic dust all over the Earth, 54 feet thick. But where is it? It's not there. And there are all sorts of processes like that that you could use to calculate time, which indicate that the Earth is quite young. Now, what about uranium lead? Well, in order to use a geochronometer like this, you have to know certain things about it for it to be reliable. The only real history we have, as we mentioned this morning, goes back about four or 5,000 years, and that's all. Everything beyond that has to be deduced indirectly by extrapolation of some uniformitarian process. Uranium and, and now to use such a process, you've got to know certain things about it. You've got to, first of all, know what it was like at the beginning, how much uranium and lead and radium and all the rest were in the mineral in the beginning when it was first crystallized. You have to know the initial state. You also have to know that it's always been a closed system, so that none of the material inside could get out or outside could get in to upset the balances. You also have to know the rate of reaction of that process, or the rate of decay, or whatever it is. And you have to know that it never has changed. Uh, At least these three things you have to know about every process in order to use them to measure time. But now, when you stop and think about it, there's not one of those three things that you can know about any process. Obviously nobody can know what it was like at the beginning because nobody was there. And if you think about uranium lead, for example, uranium is a very heavy mineral, it's the highest of the natural minerals, and whatever process was used in developing uranium in the first place, whether it was some kind of nucleosynthesis process in the interior of a star, or whether, as I think, it was God's creative process during the first day of creation, whatever was used, it's reasonable that it would have been a building up process from simple elements simple particles, to hydrogen, to helium, and on up, as atoms and electrons and so on would be added in this process, whatever it was, of creation. And so therefore, before you get up to uranium, which is at the top of the ladder, you'd have to go through lead, and consequently, it's probable, and it seems reasonable, that when the uranium mineral was finally finished, there was already some lead there to begin with right at the very start of it. And this would be also likely in any kind of a nucleosynthesis process by natural means that you could think of. And so almost certainly, therefore, in the initial state of the initially created uranium, lead was already there. Or if you think of it as having been crystallized out of a, of a magma or something at some later time, like the geologists speak of, once again, it's quite possible that radiogenic lead would have been brought into the uranium mineral when it was first crystallized. And consequently, if that's true, then the mineral would look like it's millions of years old when it was first formed. It would have an apparent age, which is quite different from the true age. So, you can never know what the initial condition was. Also, I uh, mentioned you have to know that it's been a closed system. But you can never know that because in nature there isn't any such thing as a closed system. This is an idealized concept which doesn't really happen. And especially if this is this true in the case of these radioactive minerals. They're very much open systems. Uh, to give you an example, let's talk about potassium argon for just a moment. The potassium argon, potassium is a very common mineral, so it's used quite commonly now to date rocks. And potassium decays into, by a different process than uranium does, into calcium-40 and argon-40, and argon is a gas, and gas, of course, can move through rocks, through the pores. But uh, this has been used quite widely. It, it was used, for example, to date the rocks or the rocks in, uh, in, in the area where Dr. Leakey found his Vinganthropus fossils and those things. They dated those to be about two million years old by potassium argon and it's the process that's been used mostly to date the moon rocks as a four and a half billion years or whatever. So it's, it's quite common. Uh, but now, to, to illustrate the problem here, here about two years ago, and I have the quotation from an article in Science, but I won't take time to read it, there was an article published by the Hawaiian Institute of Geophysics. They had gone and studied some of the lava rocks in Hawaii. And they found by the potassium argon method that these rocks were dated at uh, anything up to about 20 million years, because, as they, and the age increased with depth as they went into these rocks, about 20 million years old, supposedly. But the thing was that these very rocks were known to have been formed by a volcanic eruption 20, uh, 200 years ago. They were known to be 200 years old, but the potassium argon method dated them to be 20 million years old. And if they could make that big a mistake in Hawaii, they might make that big a mistake on the moon or in South Africa or somewhere else. But the, the, the thing was, and the explanation was, that when, when the potassium mineral was crystallized in these lavas, that some argon in the rocks might get into the system and was there with it when it first was formed so there was too much argon and made it look older than it really was. Well, okay, uh, it was an open system, and argon can get into it, and the, it, it can happen very easily Under many conditions, and I've got a whole pile of clippings here from uh, geophysics journals and so on describing the difficulties with the potassium-argon method, and I won't take time to read them, but here's just one. Not only can argon get in easily, but potassium can go out easily. Here it says, potassium is found to be very mobile under leaching conditions. As much as 80% of the potassium in a small sample of an iron meteorite can be removed by distilled water in four and a half hours. But well, if you can take the potassium out, then it's going to make it look much older than it is. Same thing can happen in uranium minerals, too. Uranium, in many of its compounds, is very easily leached out by groundwater. And whenever that happens, then it's going to look a whole lot older than it is. Well, also the criterion has to be valid that the, that the rate never changes, that this particular process that we're using always stays the same. But here again, in nature there is no such thing as a, as a process whose rate cannot be varied if the components of that process change. Now here let's use the radiocarbon method as an illustration. Uh, this is the one that most people are familiar with, although it really isn't the most important one. The uranium lead method is the one that's important because this is the one that dates the age of the earth to be five billion years, and everything else is calibrated against that. But the radiocarbon method is a is more familiar one because that's used to date archaeological sites. It'll only work back about 50,000 years, so it wouldn't uh, touch the age of the earth at all, but it does uh, go back further than the Bible allows us for man's history. So 50,000 years is the most it can be used. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with radiocarbon. Let me just describe it very simply, oversimply, in fact. But radiocarbon is an unstable isotope of natural carbon. Carbon has carbon 12 is natural carbon. Carbon 14, a little heavier, is uh, radiocarbon. Radiocarbon is unstable. Nitrogen also has uh, a weight of 14, relative weight of 14, and it's in the, in the air all around as nitrogen. Well, cosmic rays come in from space at a known rate from somewhere, from solar flares or from galaxies or quasars. I'm not quite sure where these all come from, but all, all around there are these cosmic rays coming in from space. When it reaches the atmosphere in a complex uh, series of, thing, of, of, of reaction that finally results in, as it were, reacting with the nitrogen-14 to produce carbon-14, and also free uh, particles, neutrons, and so on. But the carbon-14 is what we're concerned with. This is being produced in the upper atmosphere at a known rate. It reacts with uh, oxygen and all, just like natural carbon does, so it forms carbon dioxide and, and other compounds. And carbon dioxide is important in all plant life and, and animal life. And after a, little, after a period of time, of course, this uh, carbon reservoir would be uniformly distributed around the earth through plants and animals and in the ocean and so on, so that everywhere there would be a certain ratio of natural carbon and radiocarbon. This is called a specific radioactivity. And after this has been going on long enough, this, this ratio would be the same everywhere and constant uh, from then on. And in making a radiocarbon uh, dating calculation, what we, what we have to do is to find some remain of organic material, like a piece of a tree trunk or a charcoal or something, which had carbon dioxide in its life cycle when it was living, and it would have a certain percentage of radiocarbon and natural carbon, but the radiocarbon is decaying all the time pretty slowly at the rate of about 5,700 years for each half for each half of it. That is, 5,700 years, half of it decays, another 5,700 years, half of what's left decays, and so on, until finally, after about six of these half-lives, it all be gone. That's why you can only use it to go back about 50,000 years. Well, uh, the, the tree or whatever it was when it was living was taking carbon in all the time and getting it out, and a part of that carbon was radiocarbon. But when it dies, it it stops taking any in, so the radiocarbon that it had when it died keeps on decaying, so at some time after death, you could measure its radioactivity, and the amount of radioactivity it still has compared to what it would have had if it were living, it it tells you how long it's been since it died, because we know how long it takes for this stuff to decay. So this is the basis of the radiocarbon method. As I say, it's kind of oversimplified, but that's the basic idea. But in order to do this, you have to make about twelve assumptions. I won't list all of these, but one of the main ones is that there is an equilibrium between the rate of formation and the rate of decay of radiocarbon on a worldwide basis. And to see the importance of this assumption, you can imagine that sometime in the past there was no cosmic radiation coming from space, and therefore no radiocarbon being formed. Just consider that as a possibility. But now all of a sudden cosmic rays start to be formed, uh, or start to come to the Earth, so radiocarbon starts to form. Well, the the radiocarbon which is being formed stays radiocarbon for a long time. It takes 5,700 years before half of it decays. So there would be a long time before as much decays as is being formed. As a matter of fact, it would take at least about four of these half-lives before an equilibrium could be established. In other words, it would be about 20,000 years or so before the method would work. Well uh, Dr. Libby and the others who worked this method out, they recognized this and, and they acknowledged that this was a problem. But they said, well, we certainly know that the Earth is older than 20,000 years, and so we'll just assume it's in equilibrium, and go ahead and make the calculation. And they did, and this is where you get the radiocarbon dates. But actually, the measurements that are available of how much is being formed in the upper air and how much is decaying everywhere around the Earth indicate that it isn't in equilibrium. Now, let me read here from a... So you won't have to just take what I say on this. This is from... Uh, an article by Dr. Langenfelter in the Reviews of Geophysics, and Dr. Libby had found this too. He had found that the, it was not an equilibrium, but he said that this is probably just experimental error because we know it has to be in equilibrium. The Earth is plenty old enough to do it. So uh, later, Lingenfelter made a much more thorough study, and he came to this conclusion. He says there is strong indication, despite the large errors, there is a lot of experimental error in this too. There's strong indication that the present natural production rate exceeds the natural decay rate by as much as 25%. It appears that the equilibrium in the production and decay of radiocarbon cannot be maintained. Well, they still go ahead and use it, though. And even Lingenfelter, in a letter that uh, one of us wrote to him, he wrote back and said, Well, yeah, I know that that's what we got, but it, it must be just because we don't have all the data. They, we, because it has to be in equilibrium. We just know But if we don't know that, if we actually make the calculation of radiocarbon dates on the basis of the actual measured non-equilibrium values, it makes the equation a little more complicated than if you use an equilibrium equation, but you can still do it, and calculate the date on the basis of the non-equilibrium values, then it turns out that the oldest radiocarbon date, in other words, the the time when the atmosphere first began to form radiocarbon, is something like 7,000 years, maybe 10,000 at the most. And then all the other dates ought to be compressed down to fit within that scale. Now, within the past 3,000 years or so, they'll check pretty well. But as you get back beyond that, then they separate increasingly, and it just uh, won't work. Now, the radiocarbon method, rightly understood, then confirms the biblical chronology, in order of magnitude at least, that the earth is thousands of years in age, not 50,000 or a million or a billion. Well, let me let me uh, just take one more. Uh, see, I think we have got five minutes still. And I think this is kind of an interesting... This, this gets into the realm of human chronology. You've heard about the population explosion, and you know that the Earth's population is increasing now at the rate of 2% per year. So here's a growth process, too, that we can use to calculate age. 2% per year. You, try, you push this backward and see how long that's been going on. Now, you can work this out very nicely mathematically, and I won't take the time, I, but... Uh, Let's say that the first pair, this would be either a million years ago with Mr. and Mrs. Pithecancer, per se, or else Mr. and Mrs. Noah after the flood, or just before the flood, I guess, when they first begin to have children, 4,300 years ago. So we start with two people one way or the other, either 4,000, 4,300 years ago or a million years ago, and then let's assume that the first pair has two, two times C children, two C, C boys and C girls. C standing for children. And then in the first generation, of course, the brothers and sisters have to marry. There's just no way out of it. It may not be the best thing, but there's no way the race can get started any other way. And so the two C children marry and they form C families, and each of these C families has two C children. So now there are two C times C people in the second generation, two C squared people, and so on. In the third generation, there'd be two C cubed people, two C to the fourth people. In the nth generation, there would be 2C to the n people. The total number of people that have been born, you add them all up 2 plus 2C two plus 2C squared plus 2C to the n. Now we have to subtract the number of people that have died. And so let's say that the average lifespan is x generations and that the average length of a generation is 43 years. So that, uh, in other words, each parent have their children by the time they're 43 years old. This is a conservative assumption. It's probably before that, so we, we'll uh, allow 43 years. And the reason for that is that there have been 4,300 years since the Flood, and that makes 43 into 4,300, goes nicely, makes 100 generations since the Flood, so that N is 100. The Nth generation after the Flood, there have been 100 generations since Noah. Now if you, if you subtract the number of people that have died up to the N minus X generation from the total number of people that have been born up to the N generation, Then you have the number of people that are still living. That's the present world population, which we know to be about 3.5 billion people. So you work that all out. It turns out that the population, it gives a formula like this, that the population at the nth generation is equal to 2 divided by c minus 1, multiplied by c raised to the power n minus x plus 1, multiplied by c raised to the power x minus 1. Right. This is all in the book Biblical Cosmology, if you want.
1: <laughs>
0: but anyway, you set this now equal to three and a half billion. And let's simplify the equation a little bit and say that X is equal to one. In other words, there's no overlapping generation. Each set of parents lives to have their children, then they die. the lifespan is one generation, that's all. That'll simplify it. And it's on the conservative side. It avoids generation gaps and all like that. It's... Uh... <laughs> And N is 100. Now, could you guess what C would have to be, what the average family size would have to be to produce the present world population just since Noah? The average family size now is something like three and a half, I guess, children. And it would have to be more than 2, obviously, if each family had only 2 children, then the population stays exactly the same. So it's something more than 2. But it turns out if we try as many as 3 in the formula... Then we get a world population infinitely greater than the present world population. So the average family size since Noah has to have been less than three. And exactly it turns out to be two point four six. That is about one and a quarter boys and one and a quarter girls. Is <laughs> what the average family has to have been in order to produce the present world population just in the forty three hundred years since Noah. And this is with all these conservative assumptions involved, we we certainly are being reasonable in this. And this also allows wide latitude for long periods, maybe because of wars or famines or something, the population wasn't going at all. If you put this on a percentage basis, the average percent increase per year turns out to be one-half of one percent per year, but the present growth is two percent per year. So in other words, all you have to have is an average growth of one-fourth of what it is now to produce the present world population in just 4,300 years. And this is reasonable any way you look at it. You can check this at the time of Christ, the population, and everywhere else we can actually check the formula. It works out very well. But now if you use these same very conservative figures and apply them to the, to the assumption of a population growth since uh, Pithecanthropus a million years ago, it turns out that the present world population on that basis would be ten raised to the twenty seven hundred power. And you don't have any idea what that means, I'm sure, it's, but it's one with 2,700 zeros, that many people in the world today. And just to give a, a rough idea of what that uh, in, involves, if, you, if, we, if we assume that man is eventually able to get out to space and build space platforms and colonize the moon and, the, and Mars and the stars and get out finally to cover the whole universe and populate the whole universe, jam-pack every cubic inch of it with people, after four billion light years, everywhere, people. The whole universe would only hold ten to the one hundredth power of people. Now, you, it, it looks to me like the assumption that man has been on the earth anything near like a million years is just completely absurd, it's impossible, it couldn't be. Man at the very most has been on the earth four thousand years. That's, even then it looks like there ought to be more people than there are. Well. If man, and even if you even if you work it around to say, well, yeah, but evolution proves and so forth, so it has to be this way. Man did start a million years ago, and the population has to have grown very, very slowly. It turns out that the average growth, rate, the average family size, would have to be two point oh 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 one, I think, in order to produce the present population in a million years. And even if you assume that, there have been at least uh, let's see, at least four thousand billion people that have lived and died since Pethycanthropus on the earth, and practically all of them, before there was ever any scriptures or anybody knew about God or about Christ. And you not only wonder what happened to all their bones, why, fossils ought to be piled sky-high everywhere, (laughs) but even more important, what happened to their souls. Well, time is up, obviously, but anyway, I think we can look at all of these different figures of radioactive decay and all the others, and examine them closely you'll find that they all fit the, the biblical framework of a chronology based on thousands of years instead of, instead of millions.
2: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog,